0: You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. Learn more at cbmw.org. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. And my name is Denny Burke. I'm the President of CBMW. On today's podcast, we are continuing our mini-series on the several denominational meetings that are happening this summer that have to do with issues of complementarity. Earlier this year, we interviewed Matt Kennedy about developments in the ACNA. And a few weeks ago, Denny and I previewed the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. We're going to have to do a debrief at some point on that meeting soon. But on this episode, we're discussing the Christian and Missionary Alliance with Andrew Balich, who holds a PhD from Southern Seminary and serves as the the Associate Pastor of Preaching and Ministries at Westwood Alliance Church in Ontario, Ohio, where he is also the Director of Westwood Theological Academy. Andrew, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, Andrew, you're not a stranger to the ministry of CBMW. In fact, a few years ago, you wrote an article for the fall 2020 issue of ICON titled, A Radical Question for a Conservative Church. Should the Christian and Missionary Alliance Call Women Pastors? Can you help our listeners understand what the thesis of that article was? In that article,
1: what I was trying to do was provide a... Kind of survey on the question of women in ministry in the Christian Missionary Alliance, and then at the end make a uh, exegetical argument, but then also appeal uh, at the at the end of the article to to kind of maintain what I said was CMA's historic position, which was uh, started with the founder of our our movement, A.B. Simpson, back in the 1880s. Uh, He said some things that aren't always 100% clear, but I think at the end of the day, he defined uh, elder, pastor, and overseer as a singular office, and that office was to be held by uh, qualified men. Um, And then in the denomination's documents, the denomination became an official denomination in 1974, and um, everything from looking at minutes and uh, reports and the theological issues committees uh, uh, reports as well. It shows that that really overwhelmingly, while there has been some dissent, overwhelmingly the denomination has defined pastor, elder, and overseer as a a singular office. <clears throat> excuse me, reserved for for qualified men. And so, I wanted to show that history because I didn't feel like it had been done uh, yet. I wanted to do it in a digestible form, not a book length sort of treatment. Um, and then the the reason for it, the timing of it was uh, we were originally uh, being prepped for our biannual meeting. It's called General Counsel. It's the highest legislative authority in our denomination. Uh, we met in Nashville in t- the summer of 2021. And originally, we we're going to decide some of these questions then. Uh, it got moved to the question, got moved to uh, the council that we most recently had that uh, met May 30th through uh, June 2nd uh, here earlier this month, which I'm sure we'll we'll get to later.
0: Yeah, so this is a conversation that has been going on for some time now. Like I said, that article was released back in fall 2020. So this uh, was on your radar way back then, and I'm sure had been a conversation that had been happening for several years before that. Uh, but before we get into this year's meeting, can we just take a step back and help our listeners understand you mentioned the origins but what is the Christian Missionary Alliance how does it similar and different to for instance the Southern Baptist Convention to the PCA in terms of you know ecclesiology and and polity
1: Yeah the Christian Missionary Alliance was a missions movement started by A B Simpson in the 1880s he was a Presbyterian pastor actually he served for a while in Louisville Kentucky uh, and then was a Presbyterian pastor in New York. And part of the mainline denomination, he was troubled with the lack of concern for uh, the poor immigrants that were coming in to the city in New York. He was troubled by the lack of uh, welcoming to them in his church, troubled by the lack of concern for the gospel to be taken to the unreached peoples of the globe. And so it really started around the uh, fulfilling the Great Commission. Um, and so it was non-denominational initially. Uh, a lot of folks from the mainline denominations would be part of uh, their regular church and then would be a part of what the Alliance, early alliance called branches. They would often meet uh, in the afternoons and evenings. And so this, though, solidified over the years and became... Uh, more of a well-defined movement and became a denomination in, like I mentioned, 1974. And before that, it had already been doing credentialing and the rest. And so uh, the the CMA is a hybrid between uh, congregationalism and Presbyterianism. And so the local churches are given a lot of autonomy. We pat- practice believers' baptism by immersion. Um, and uh, the the local church... Uh, elects elders, they approve budgets. It's kind of like a elder-led congregationalism that uh, the congregation approves and affirms what what the elders are doing. But above that, there is a structure to the denomination as well, and so we have districts uh, here in Ohio uh in eastern ohio we're part of what's called the central district which is about 90-ish churches in eastern ohio and all of west virginia and so there's different regional districts throughout the united states and it's the district that does licensing ordination, and the rest and so you have the the district level and then the national level gives oversight to
0: all of all of those
1: districts so it's a bit of a hybrid it is
0: gotcha so i think that sets up well uh this episode, this conversation, what happened a couple of weeks ago? What, what meeting was it that the kind of the headlines came out of from the Christian and missionary Alliance? Yeah. So
1: every two years, the Christian missionary Alliance gathers uh, in what's called general council and general council would be something equivalent to the Southern Baptist convention uh, or the, the main national meeting of the Presbyterian denominations. And uh, everybody who is licensed in the Alliance, it's called an official worker in our lingo, uh, is automatically a delegate at that meeting. And then based on the size of a church, you have certain amount of lay delegates that are appointed and and can go and vote. And so general counsel is the primary uh, or the highest legislative authority in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And so anytime... Our handbook is changed in any kind of significant way. Uh, anytime the statement of faith would be updated or we would make a statement on a social issue, for instance, that has to go through uh, general counsel. And so here earlier this month, we met in Spokane, Washington uh, for four days. Uh, we actually extended it. It's usually a three day meeting. It was a four day meeting this year because uh, there was a lot on the agenda. And one of the, the Was that an ticket-
0: impromptu uh, extension? Like you guys can do that. You can just make the meeting four days instead of three.
1: Uh yeah, it is. So it's really up to the 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 president and the board of directors sets the agenda and the length and uh, planning of the meeting and sort of thing. So yeah, it, it didn't take like a it didn't it didn't take a act of general counsel in order to extend extend the meeting. So we were talking about statement of faith issues, which we've been doing the last couple of years uh debating premillennialism and whether we should hold to that as a denomination, for instance. Uh but the big ticket, whatever what got everybody who went to Spokane to Spokane, was the issue of uh ordination and the titling of women pastors. And so uh what happened in Spokane was that the Christian missionary alliance uh is or kind of ancient history has had two tracks of credentialing. There's ordination for men and there's what we call consecration for women. And the, uh, the tracks look very much the same, uh, but your available positions that, that you would be able to have opportunities for at the end of those tracks very differently because of, uh, the, what, what we held as far as what was exclusively for men and what was allowable for, for for women. And so what we did in Spokane as general counsel was vote to unify that. So everybody who goes through the licensing credentialing process in their districts uh, as part of the Christian Missionary Alliance will be an ordained and consecrated official worker. So they unified those. Um, so we would offer ordination to women and allow them to have the uh the, the reference of reverend and everything that goes along with ordination. And then what they did that was the change uh, uh, that that is significant for local churches and and really biblical categories, um at least in my opinion, was that title of pastor. What they said was basically elder and overseer, is separate from pastor. And we can get into the exegetical reasons for why they did that if you'd like, but they separated that and now are allowing local churches to have autonomy on giving of that title pastor as they see fit. So that title pastor is now available to be given to women uh, in local churches with the exception of, and I will say this this is important, uh, the exception of lead pastor, the lead pastor in our polity is automatically an elder so you can't have a lead female pastor but any type of support role uh and and associate type role on a staff uh that title pastor is available now to women
0: it sounds actually very similar to the conversation that was unfolding in the Southern Baptist convention leading up to this annual meeting and then also in the aftermath was yeah the relationship between like you mentioned, pastor and elder and overseer, whether the New Testament does indeed, and we believe it does, see those terms as synonymous uh, or whether pastor is some kind of spiritual gift or something otherwise. Those were the, the arguments that Rick Warren was making. Is that kind of the the same debate that was happening that pastor is not necessarily an office in the New Testament, but some kind of a spiritual gift?
1: It is, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a... the, the, The exegetical argument at its best from those who would differ from me or what you just described as pastor, elder, overseer being synonymous is that in the New Testament, that term shepherd or pastor is not used as a noun, except for the one case of Uh, Ephesians chapter four, right? Verse 11, where it talks about him giving uh, the Lord, giving uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers. Now there's all kinds of debate about what's going on there. Are those offices? Are those giftings? The CMA, the way that has been presented uh, and the way that argument went was those are not offices. Those are giftings. And so the one time we see the term shepherd or pastor used as a noun, Ephesians 4, it's in the context of a gifting. And every time we see it, otherwise it is in the form of uh, a verb, right? Acts chapter 20, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, shepherd the flock of God, 1 Peter 5. There's multiple places where that happens. And so they're saying pastoring is a function. Pastoring is something that women do. So therefore the titling of that is a right. Imposed by, uh, human beings. It's not an issue of the new Testament. And so therefore, uh, that term should be allowable for women. That's kind of the exegetical argument is, is a gist. And so it sounds very similar to what happened, even if, uh, in the CMA, the the voting came out very different than it did, uh, in the SBC.
0: So it sounds like, uh, the CMA would probably, even after this meeting, uh, would hold to some form of complementarianism in terms of restricting the office of elder overseer to qualified men, but then somehow opening this almost like a third office uh, for for women. Uh, again, we're, I don't think that's convincing exegesis. But Denny, what what do you think about that uh, in relation to what we've seen in the SBC? I'm kind of wondering does does the CMA have a
2: confessional stance on how many offices there are?
1: So our statement of faith is, uh, you know, it's 11 articles that speaks to kind of traditional things about God and the inerrancy of scripture and, and what you'd expect in a statement of faith. And so in the statement of faith itself is, is very broad and doesn't come down on that. But I will say this, I mean, in the, in the CMA polity and practice, they, uh, it's pretty universal. There's two. There's
2: two offices,
1: and I would say pretty. It, it very much is. There's there, there's the office of elder. Uh, what's or, the overseer. polity and
2: practice? Is that a different governing document? The polity and practice.
1: When I say po- I'm talking about the CMA, what's called our manual. Our CMA manual is a 700 page document that includes or several hundred page document that includes our statement of faith, our uniform policy on constitutions and bylaws. So and, it is you know, an a, it's a governing. It
2: is an official governing document. That it lists- is, but it
1: doesn't ride it doesn't rise to the level of a as a statement of faith, I guess. Is so there's there's a two-level, two-tier authority there. Uh confessional versus uh, how we operate. And so in the CMA, it is defined. There are only two offices. There's uh, elder overseer and deacon, which we would see as open to men and women, uh, deacon and deaconess. But in that's the you know, singular office. Right. So there's two offices. And they're very much arguing what the those who have proposed these changes, very much arguing that they're not adjusting the offices is still elder overseer and deacon uh as one is two offices but it's an issue of titling uh it's a it's a man-made thing to call people pastors uh it's just a it's a capturing the function that is done by elders and overseers yes uh but also done by lots of God's people uh in the context of the church And so that's that's I'm not convinced by that but that's the way the argument goes yes so at,
2: when you were at the meeting did you get a chance to um, have a debate about this. Did you present a biblical case for, you know, one office of leadership versus what? To me, it sounds like pastor would be a de facto second office of leadership, even if they're not calling for that. Um, but did you make a case, biblical or otherwise?
1: Uh, a case was made to unify, uh, or to to affirm. So you can go back. It, it's an official report in the uh general in the. In the manual, right, in the general counsel minutes that were adopted in the 1990s, there was an exegetical case made, and I reference this in that Icon article, the elder pastor overseer are the same thing. And so that case has historically been the position of the Alliance. It's maybe not been practiced consistently, uh, but it has been the historical stance of the Alliance, and when pushed to define terms, that's how they have defined them. Um, and so the weight of the burden really was on the other side. And I will say it was a uh, the the business sessions of the CMA in Spokane were uh, maddening, mad, maddening uh, uh political and Roberts rules of order, posturing, limiting debate, you know, qualification. So we didn't really get have a full throated doctrinal debate from the floor. No. Um, and I wasn't able to get there because we, after they limited the debate, um, to 21 minutes. So each delegate gets gets three minutes to speak. They limited debate to 21 minutes on these pertinent articles that we're talking about. Now, it was basically first seven people to the microphone. And there was already lines that, that prohibited anybody from, uh, participating. So it was, uh, it was frustrating, to say the least, that we weren't able to really hash it out like uh, we had
2: potentially hoped. As you as you perceive sides to the debate within the denomination, are the sides is this a comp, is this a complementarian versus complementarian intramural debate, or do you perceive well actually this is um, a more of an egalitarian move and folks who favor egalitarianism they're they're just moving the ball down the road down the field a little bit by, you know, capturing the pastor title and probably later we're going to be having the elder overseer conversation. I'm I'm looking in on the outside. I have no, I'm totally relying on you to understand how this debate is shaping up within the the denomination. And I was was hoping you could explain that part to our, our listeners.
1: Yeah. Well, to be fair to what uh, those who, were pushing for the title of pastor to be given to women, they they're using a term that's called that they're, they're their own term, calling it soft complementarianism. So they want to hold elder uh, overseer as an office for men. And they have done that so far. They have done that. Um, but in order to remove the pastor uh, element from the conversation and to allow a woman to hold that, that position or have that title right there's some pretty shaky exegesis in my opinion on ephesians 4 and whether those that list that we talked about is a gifting or an office and then it's uh you know goes back to first timothy chapter 2 and whether that uh teaching and having authority are we talking about a usurpation of authority and abuse of authority or are we just talking about teaching and authority and again hotly debated text um and so to give to be uh, an honest representation of how those who would dis- disagree with me on this are presenting it, it's a soft complementarianism. This is as far as we're going to go. We don't have any further agenda.
2: That is what the claim is. Now, from what's, the well, other you know, side, what's interesting about that is the um, I, I hear that too from soft complementarians that, that they'll make a case like this and they'll make the case from First Timothy 2. You know, I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, and they would say, "Well, really, it's talking about assuming authority, like independently taking to themselves an authority sure. that wasn't de- properly delegated." To them. That is one of the leading in- egalitarian interpretations of that text. It's been sure. advocated by Philip Payne and many others. Um, so, it, it's what's fascinating and ironic to me is that the soft complementarians who will make that argument are actually adopting primary arguments from the ag- egalitarians and the way that they approach these watershed texts yeah well I, I so wholeheartedly,
1: yeah well I wholeheartedly agree with you and I think the hermeneutic that allows the position that the CMA just took a month ago is the same hermeneutic now we're uh very much uh castigated in the denomination for making a slippery slope argument but what I like to say is, when the slope is steep and greased and everybody else who's stepped on it has slid down, it should give us pause, right? <laughs> That's um, right. But, Absolutely. but that hermeneutic goes further, right? In order to get around the creation grounding that Paul makes for his assertions in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it, it opens up Pandora's box down the road. Now, we're not there as a denomination yet, and I don't want to borrow tomorrow's troubles, so to speak, but... But it is troubling that we're in a position using this kind of biblical interpretation to get to the position we are today. So I don't know people's hearts and motives. There, there's not been an agenda that appears to drive this further, but uh, it's it's concerning because the ammunition is there, so to speak, to drive it further. Uh, and I'd be very surprised if there's not those who would pick up that mantle.
2: Do you think then what's practically in the churches... Or are you just going to see more and more women as the Sunday morning preachers? They just won't hold the office of elder? I mean, could a woman be like the senior pastor of a church?
1: So technically right now, no, they cannot be a, a senior pastor because the senior pastor is an official position that is automatically an elder. Every other pastor on staff, it's up to the church whether to make them an elder or not. So, for instance, at Westwood, where we are, we we hold that pastors are elders are overseers. So if you're hired as a pastor on staff, you are an elder uh, at our church. But that's not the case in every CMA church because of that division between elder and pastor. And so right now, no, you cannot have a lead pastor who is a woman. But you very much, yes, can. And this has been for a long time have women preaching from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And the way that the soft complementarian would maintain their complementarianism on that is saying that, that she is uh, preaching underneath the authority and at the uh, behest of the elders. And so so you're saying that's, that's not a legitimate, recent,
0: that's not a recent development that has been happening. Women preaching the regular Sunday morning message in the CMA.
1: Yes. Yes. That's that, that happens. Uh, in the CMA. Now I don't know of places where they've, you know, there's been a technical senior pastor and then we have a preaching pastor who's a woman who's regularly preaching and doing the preaching, but yeah, there are isolated incidents very much so of, of women uh, having the, the pulpit ministry on a, on a Sunday morning. Yeah. So with a centralizing troubling. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It seems like the CMA does centralized ordination, but it doesn't regulate the, the function of preaching so it's just the office of elder overseer but then it's up to the churches so it seems like already there's a separation between office and function again a parallel in the spc and other places that this conversation is happening that the office of pastor elder overseer is separated from the function of office elder overseer that is you know exercising authority especially through the sunday morning preaching of god's word
1: Yeah. No, there's very much a separation of that. And there has been for, uh, a, a long time. And that's why I think, uh, if we're going to return to historic CMA practice and, uh, biblical faithfulness on these issues it's it's not just stopping or or it wasn't just stopping what happened in spokane from happening or now returning to what it was pre-spokane in general Counsel. no there's there's ground that needs to be clawed back on these issues in a number of ways and and his and you know historically I, i i do think to your point of uniting function with office is important because what the CMA will, people in the CMA will do is say, hey, look at A.B. Simpson or A.W. Tozer or uh, L. King, like, you know, these his, these CMA his, historical heroes. Well, they let a, a uh, woman preach at a evangelistic tent meeting. Well, whether you're comfortable with that or not is a separate question. But what the reality is, that's not somebody serving as an elder or pastor and gathered worship on a Sunday morning, right? So we can't look at that and say, hey, look, they're okay with women pastors. So I, We need to have in the CMA a much more careful discussion about the gathered church, why that's significant, the the unity of function and office uh, when it comes to elder and how preaching fits into that, um, and just be more careful. Uh, you know, in those discussions, but it's been some sloppiness of, hey, look at this precedent; therefore, it's the same, and it's not apples and apples.
0: Well, this is where I would just want to note that, you know, the 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 folks that want to restrict the male only qualifications to the office, uh, you know, when you go to First Timothy two, Paul's talking about function there as related. I mean, sure. he's talking about the functional, you know, aspects of the office that is teaching and exercising authority. Um, so, just the way that that conversation playing out. I, I think that you know we all need to go back to the text and and see what it is that that Paul is prescribing the New Testament is prescribing for you know the church. Sure no I do I I 100 percent agree with you
1: and and part of the difficulty is getting the right literature and studies and biblical arguments to the right the right people. You know, that book, uh, men, I think it's called just men and women in the church. Uh, that's a whole edited volume by Schreiner and Kostenberger that deals with this usurpation issue yep, and that, in that text. And yeah, that text in first Timothy two. I mean, uh, anybody who wants to argue this position needs to debunk that in my opinion. And I don't see that happening anywhere. Certainly not in Alliance circles or even in an engagement with it, let alone a, uh, a, a fitting rebuttal.
0: Well, in terms of the debate and the vote uh, that happened you know, a few weeks back, how close of an issue is this? Is it 50-50, 60-40? I mean, what's your perception on- Closer to
1: 60-40. So, I mean, we, we saw the results right there. Um, and so it was 36% and some change uh, to, you know, 60% and some change. Uh, so it was handily approved uh in at Spokane, but you know, I came away from that, uh, disappointed, yes, especially disappointed in the way the process went. Um, but also encouraged upon further reflection because almost 37% of the uh, CMA gave a hard no to this in Spokane. We're not in the heartland of the United States, right? We're on a Mm -hmm. coast, and we all know that that's significant. (laughs) We're in Spokane. We're in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, They did not allow remote voting, so you didn't have a large representation of the CMA. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Nashville, because of COVID, uh, they allowed remote voting, but they did not settle this issue. They waited till Spokane. And they did not uh, allow remote voting in in Spokane. And then third, you know, there really uh, was a a kind of overwhelming sense of inevitability from the platform that this is the way we're going and everybody should really just get on board a, a great pressure in the first three and a half days. And so when it came to voting and debating these things on Friday afternoon at the end of the meeting, uh, you know almost 37% still said a hard no. I took that as uh, the fight's not over, even if it's disappointing that it went this way.
0: That brings me to my next question. Then what are complementarian, I should say, solidly complementarian congregations like yours considering doing in the aftermath? Is there any recourse? Is there any plan of action? What's What's the game plan here?
1: Well, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do initially is uh, basically circle the wagons, so to speak, and and find out not only who is complementarian uh, in a traditional sense, but who's willing to uh, give a concerted effort uh, to help our denomination. And so uh, initially, what I think Spokane did was help to galvanize a uh, maybe it's a minority, maybe it's not a minority of us who view things this way, uh, both for solidarity and encouragement to one another, another through networking, but also uh, for strategy. And, you know, we didn't get to this place overnight. It's not going to be uh, things are not going to change overnight, you know. And so what what we're seeing is there's a there's a need for a kind of intellectual wing of a network that sees things this way. Uh, that is not just applying consistent hermeneutics to this issue. We don't want to just be the uh, angry complementarians, right? We, we want to consistently ply, apply this hermeneutic that we're in seriousness about doctrine and exegesis to the other distinctives uh, and, and theological positions of the alliance. So there's an intellectual side that I think is going to come out of this. And there is a going to necessarily be a political side, too you know denominations are political animals and we're going to have to have an effort to get board of directors people elected so that we can have some control of the nominating committee and can have some control of leadership and institutions and the rest and so it's going to be uh, uh a long haul sort of sort of effort and so right now we're, we're in the process of networking finding out how many of us there really are and kind of what everybody has the stomach for but uh i'm hopeful and and my uh my appeal would be for for people not to jump ship you know we are uh as the cma we we've, we've veered off course a little bit on this issue but we're not headed in the wrong direction uh you know and so if everybody jumps ship You know, it's emotional. We're only a month out of the the meeting. People are talking about doing things right away. Um, If everybody jumps, it will go the wrong direction, you know? So my appeal would be let's stay, let's fight, let's try to correct course, let's network. And then if someday... Uh, these implications actually come to fruition from the hermeneutic that's been applied. Well, then we'll actually have uh, some uh, a network and some folks to leave with, you know. But I look, I'm a history guy. I look at history, you know. And I, I just heard the other day if uh, if in the 1950s uh, the good men would have left the PCUS, uh, they wouldn't have had. The denomination to start as a group in the 1970s that we know now as the PCA. You know, if in the SBC uh, the good men would have jumped early, there wouldn't have been the conservative resurgence uh, in the 1980s. And we're not that far gone. The other thing is about the CMA, we're still holding to inerrancy, we're still holding to biblical authority um where we're not questioning those things even if we are applying a troubling hermeneutic that could give us potential danger down the road and so my my appeal to fellow CMA folks would be let's let's stay let's wait give our leadership a chance to tell us how this is going to look going forward um and the reality is life didn't change overnight because they are giving local churches autonomy on these issues uh, nobody's making us, as complementarians, do something that is against our conscience and convictions, um, even if it is troubling that somebody else uh, in the denomination is allowed to do those things. And so, yeah, the, the appeal to the CMA would be to to stay and fight. The appeal to uh, those of you who are outside the CMA and listening to this or are aware of this would be just to pray for us. You know, mm. the denomination has a long history of faithfulness and an effective strategy at taking the gospel to the nations and and we don't want to lose the the legacy and the institutions and the, the strategy that has has come from those those decades of faithfulness
0: amen brother well we wish you all the best on that godspeed and thanks so much for coming on the podcast today
1: yeah it's been great to be here i appreciate the opportunity
0: resources like the cbmw podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.